Hello, this is Robert Peters, and you're listening to The Beacon, the Oxford International Relations Society's podcast. Today, I'm at the Oxford University China Centre, speaking with Professor Rana Mitter, a leading authority on the history of modern China. Rana is the author of several books on the topic, including China's War with Japan, 1937 to 1945, The Struggle for Survival in 2013. And he is currently presenting Chinese Characters, a major new series on BBC Radio 4, exploring the lives of some of the most important figures in the country's long history. Uh, So thank you very much for joining us, first of all. Pleasure to be here, Robert. Thank you. Thanks. Um, So in this episode of The Beacon, um, we'll be discussing the contemporary relevance and the legacy of China's experience of the Second World War on its international relations today, including how um, this experience has shaped its relationship with its neighbours and also how China conducts itself today in its self-perceptions in international relations. So first of all, um, I think we can all agree that as China becomes more and more important globally, an understanding of its recent past has never been quite so important. But I feel that for many of us, um, an understanding of the country's experience of the Second World War is not a particularly familiar story. So I was wondering if, first of all, for listeners, you could just briefly explain what China's experience from 1937 to 45 actually was. Absolutely, Robert. This is, I would say, one of the major events in world history of the last century or so, which has affected actually the way that we all live, including in the West, but which is very little appreciated outside the Asia-Pacific region. Just this week has actually shown why looking at this period of time is so important. As we're speaking, there's a lot of frantic negotiation going on between Japan and China about an upcoming visit potentially by the Emperor of Japan to China, which will be the first time that that's happened, and a sign that actually the relationship in many ways is volatile, but can go up as well as down. And we need to understand the historic reasons why that's the case. So let's talk about the events that really led to what more than 70 years on is still this very fraught, very fractious, but very important relationship. And that is the years of all-out war, eight years between 1937 and 1945, when Japan invaded China and China resisted, until finally, in an alliance with the British Empire and the United States, it ended up uh, almost exhausted, but ultimately victorious. This was the China portion of World War II. In the West, we tend to be more familiar on the European side, obviously, with the uh, uh, Dunkirk, the Mm. Bulge, and so forth, the Soviet front even, sometimes even the Pacific War, which the Americans fought the Japanese. But this is different. This is the Sino-Japanese War, in which the Chinese and the Japanese fought each other. More than 10 million, perhaps up to 14 million Chinese died during that war. 80 to 100 million Chinese became refugees in their own country during that time. And the very fragile but very real infrastructure of railways, roads, factories, industrialization that was being built in the period up to 1937 in China, often in very difficult conditions, was essentially smashed beyond repair. It was also a war which made a difference to the overall world war in a big way. If China had not resisted Japan, then more than half a million Japanese troops would have been released to essentially uh, attack Southeast Asia, attack the Soviet Union, maybe even attack the British Empire and India. Not entirely clear what would have happened. What we do know from history is that Chinese troops, mostly acting on their own, held down more than half a million of them for four and a half years until Pearl Harbor happened and the alliance with the Americans and the British. So this is a period of huge importance and trauma and tragedy for the Chinese themselves, 
but it's also a period of global history that the rest of the world doesn't really know enough about. Mm. No, thank you for that. Um, and of course, with the war's end, that was not the end. That was not the arrival of peace in, in China, um, but the, the continuation of the civil war between Chang's Kuomintang regime and the um, communists under Mao, um, ultimately, of course, with the victory of the Chinese Communist Party and Chang's government going into exile in, in Taiwan. Um, and so how did these two different Chinas which emerged um, in the wake of the war engage with, with the legacy of, of, of the conflict um, uh, moving forward in the next couple of decades? Well, that's an extremely interesting question, Robert. Uh, quite a complex one, but I will try to be simple because it relates very strongly to the international relations of the region, which, of course, is very much what the Society's mm. podcast is about, I think. China, like Germany and Korea, is one of those countries that has the peculiarity of having two regimes simultaneously mm. and separately representing it. The difference is that in an uneasy way, North and South Korea coexist. Uh, East and West Germany coexisted for, for a time in the Cold War. But China and Taiwan, while they coexist, have for most of that time not really acknowledged anything of the legitimacy of the other side. The change in that, and it's still quite minimal, has only happened in, in recent years. So essentially, both societies, the huge communist giant on the mainland, the People's Republic of China, and the little island of Taiwan, which continued to call itself, still does to this day, the Republic of China, the, the legacy regime from the mainland, both sought legitimacy, both to their own people and to the outside world. They did this through a variety of ways. Again, people listening to this are probably interested in IR, so membership of the United Nations was one of the areas where there was a real uh, fight over that. But the legacy of World War II was one of the important areas where they sought to draw on the traumatic experiences of the recent past to say something about their right to exist in the present. So for the mainland, it was in a sense quite simple. The story was told, and no dissent was permitted, that the Chinese Communist Party under Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, was the only force that really fought back against the Japanese, united the people behind it, and really resisted the Japanese onslaught. Any other actors, their Kuomintang uh, nationalist rivals under Chiang Kai-shek, the Americans, the British, these were not really part of the story in any positive or heroic way. And during much of the Cold War, Taiwan went almost the other way around. For them, it was the Kuomintang nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek that had really done the vast majority of the fighting, whereas... Um, the uh, communists, of course, were uh, condemned as bandits and, uh, mm -hmm. and layabouts who'd done very little. Now the situation is more complex. Both sides still have their own story to tell, but both are more willing to acknowledge the contribution of the other to overall victory in World War II. But one thing that certainly on the mainland has not changed is the continuing usage of the memory and the legacy, the social memory of World War II to boost China's position today in the early 21st century. Um, I think sort of following on from that point, an important sort of paradigmatic example of what you were just discussing is comes in 2015 um, with the China Victory Day Parade, which celebrated the 70th anniversary of the end of the war in China in Beijing, um, which was sort of the most high, the high, the most high profile, sorry, uh, military parade held to celebrate the end of the war or an event other than the National Day and the establishing of the People's Republic uh, on the mainland. 
Um, so why do you think that the, the profile of the Second World War has, if anything, grown in the last few decades or the last few years on the mainland? Well, I remember that parade in uh, September, September the 3rd, in fact, of 2015, very well, because I was actually sitting in a TV studio in Beijing commentating for <laughs> Chinese television, which was quite a, an interesting experience, to put it, uh, to put it mildly. Um, I was able to identify some of the, the dignitaries who had come, such as Britain's representative, the former uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Kenneth Clark, who, of course, is well-known here in Britain, but maybe not so much in, in, in China. Um, the parade was an immensely important turning point mm -hmm. in terms of the way in which the mainland both looked at its own history and related to the outside world. And these two things came together. The international side was more obvious. Because if you looked at who was lined up in the parade next to President Xi Jinping, you could see the president of South Korea. Now, South Korea is technically a, an American, not technically, it is an American ally. Mm -hmm. But to have the president, uh, who's now in jail, in fact, uh, Park Geun-hye, mm -hmm. standing next to Xi Jinping, whereas, whereas the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, officially an ally of the, uh, the Chinese regime, was nowhere to be seen, was an interesting indication of how the geopolitics of the region was changing. It's just... One example amongst several. But for many of us, particularly those interested in history, all of that change in geopolitics, very much of the moment in the 2010s, came together with a really interesting sign of how the past had come into the present. One event, it was quite short, right in the middle of the parade, was the bringing out of eight very old men. The youngest, I think, was 90, the oldest was 102. And there were eight veterans of the Chinese war against Japan, the Second World War. Four of the veterans were from the Chinese Communist Party's armies, the Eighth Route Army. The other four were from the Nationalist armies of the Guomindang that had fought under Chiang Kai-shek's leadership. 20, 30 years ago, even 10 years ago, I suspect this would have been a very difficult thing to pull off. It was a really important piece of symbolism that China was saying that old political divisions from the Cold War era were being at least partially washed away to remember a time when China's uh, resistance stood united against an invader, even though there were political differences between them. Many people, if you'd asked them 25 years ago, said, will veterans of the nationalist armies ever be paraded in front of the leader of the Chinese Communist Party would have you know, scoffed at that, it wouldn't have been thinkable. And there it was happening in front of millions of people on live television. So that was a real turning point. So this uh, almost sort of rehabilitation of, of these veterans and sort of the, the Kuomintang's role in the war, um, how do you think that ties into how this parade and sort of other events to do um, with the Second World War's legacy in China, um, how does that tie into China's projection of how it wants to be perceived on the international stage, um, particularly as it rises more and more as a great power? Telling the world a lot more about China's now more than 70 plus years ago role in World War II is one strand, just one, but a very important one in a much bigger story that China is telling about itself to the outside world. Let's think about what some of, for a moment what some of those other big international stories are that China is telling. One Belt, One Road, the mm -hmm. BRI, as sometimes known, the Belt and Road Initiative, a huge security, economic and infrastructural project in which, if it comes off, and the word if is a big one there, may inject something like eight, ten trillion dollars worth, US dollars worth of infrastructure in a region stretching from Western Europe all the way to Southeast Asia. So that's a big economic forward-looking story the Chinese are telling. Another one that many people will know is about militarization. The South China Sea mm. is becoming much, much more closely surveilled by the Chinese Navy, 
Chinese Air Force, increasingly assertive use of international law by China to say the immediate areas around China's coastline and beyond that projected into the open seas are actually Chinese water, not international water. Both of these developments have given some people pause for thought, other people have welcomed them, but they're very much about China and where it's going. The history element, you might say, is a third strand that comes into that grounding China into a bigger story about where it's come from. And the Second World War is a huge part of that for this reason. In international society, China wants to remind people of its role as one of the not three but four allied powers in the war, the United States, the British Empire, the Soviet Union, and China. Some might add France too, although that is perhaps a more touchy subject, uh, it must be, uh, must be said. And by saying that, the Chinese are projecting the idea that they have in the past been part of a positive force of resistance against dark forces in the world. The Chinese themselves much more refer to it these days as a global anti-fascist war, as opposed to a Chinese people's liberation war, which is what they would have said much more 40 or 50 years ago. And part of this is designed to remind people that China played a role in creating the world order we have today, the world order that began in 1945. Of course, we know that the Americans had a huge role in shaping it, Truman, Dean Acheson, and so forth, the British too, Truman, uh, Bevin, uh, not Truman, sorry, Bevin, Attlee, mm -hmm. uh, Churchill. But the Chinese role has always been very much underplayed. And the Chinese want to remind people now that in all sorts of areas, a Chinese contribution to the UN Declaration of Human Rights, Chinese participation in the Bretton Woods Economic Conference that uh, kick-started the post-war economic order, Chinese judge at the Tokyo war crimes trials. Mm -hmm. China was very much present at the creation, to use the phrase that Dean Acheson used about the United States and his role in creating that, uh, that world. And that's why those questions of historical formation of world order in the 1940s have become a really big deal for the Chinese of the 2010s, who are once again seeking to remake regional and world order. Mm. So sort of, would it, would it be fair to say that China is trying to portray itself by drawing on its history, not as a threat to, say, the United States and Britain and other Western powers, but as a former ally and a, a continued ally moving forwards? I think it's an important element of what the Chinese want to do. I mean, there is also, in China's eyes, as there is in the eyes, let's say, of President Trump, mm. a very realist view of the world. I mean, those of your listeners who do international relations uh, will know that this very hard-edged view of power as the defining way that the world works, that is something that you find fairly commonly in China, let's be mm -hmm. honest about it. It's, it's, it's a mainstream viewpoint. And it's not surprising from a country which of the last 200 years has spent more than 100, maybe 150 being kicked around by other powers. So you can understand why that understanding of the nature of raw power has come to be what it is. But there is also a set of what you might call ideational factors. In other words, the idea that ideology, ways of thinking about narratives, constructing an idea of what international society is, these are important too. And drawing on the idea that China has been an ally during one crucial time for world order, World War II, is certainly part of that set of tactics. It's not just that the Chinese want to gain more power, which they do and may well mm. achieve. It's also wanting to create the idea 
that China deserves that power. It's mm. not just getting it because it's forcing its way in. Rather, China has earned the right to it. It earns it partly through things like paying of economic infrastructure, through the One Belt, One Road programme, for instance, but it also would claim that it's earned it over decades past by fighting, dying, sacrificing during World War II, not least because that is an argument that is still made, at least by extension, by the United States, the Soviet Union and Britain, even in the present day. And if you don't believe that, check out the movies that have been on shows <laughs> in cinemas in the last year. Dunkirk, Finest Hour, Darkest Hour, Churchill. That was off the top of my head. I could probably name half a dozen more, and you could too. Mm. No. Um, in, in China, actually, sort of just, just linking to that point, is um, the war playing more of a part in sort of popular culture domestically as well? Is that... It very much is. Um, if uh, I may uh, uh, recommend to your listeners, if you have the time and inclination, um, on BBC iPlayer, you will find available a radio documentary called Japan's Never-Ending War, uh, which I just put out on uh, BBC Radio last week and is available uh, for the near future um, online, which looks, despite the title, not just at Japan, but also China, in terms of the way that they see World War II very differently through their movies. Mm-hmm. So even today, the Japanese tend to see movies which are more about Japanese suffering, particularly during the last year of the war, firebombing of Tokyo, atomic bombings Mm. and so forth. The Chinese take is very different. Their issues like the so-called Rape of Nanking, the horrific massacre that took place in December 1937, are much more to the fore, as you might expect. Mm. So popular culture is still very much, uh, well, I'll use the phrase, a battleground between Japan and China. Of course, it's much better they should be battling on screen than on the actual battlefield. Yes. But nonetheless, it does suggest that maybe a mutual understanding is still some way off. So to follow on from that, how accurate is the uh, portrayal of the war within China um, to actual historical events, say, for example, in relation to the complex role of those who collaborated with the Japanese, such as Wang Jingwei, for example? I would say that the portrayal of the Second World War in China is much, much more extensive and objective than it was 30 or 40 years ago, but it still has certain areas that are not well explored. So by that I mean that the role of the former Kuomintang nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek, which was really not talked about in anything other than very negative terms during the Cultural Revolution you know, under Mao, is now accepted really quite widely as having played some positive role, a significant positive role, during World War II. And that means it's more acceptable and easier to do research on that subject, to make television programmes about it, have websites about it, open museums, memorials to that part of the the history. And that, of course, has been a great relief to many, many people whose ordinary families were connected to those those soldiers who fought in the 30s and 40s, but on quote marks the wrong side, the nationalist side rather than the communist side, and so for many years weren't able to acknowledge their loss. So that opening up of the historical uh, boundaries uh, has been really valuable. But as you indicated in your question, there are some areas that are still either taboo or at least very difficult to explore in detail. And one is the subject of collaboration. Wang Jingwei, a Chinese politician who was sometimes nicknamed the Pétain or the Laval of China, collaborated with the Japanese by defecting to them in 1938 and set up a rival regime in Nanjing in 1940. This was something that um, clearly marked him after the war. He died in 1944, in fact, probably wisely. Um, (laughs) But um, after the war, of course, his reputation was blackened as the worst traitor that had ever been seen in China. And he 
um, you know, he's, not, he's never really been rehabilitated since. But detailed research about him has been difficult for that reason. Now, again, this isn't unique to China. It was not till the 60s, really, that the research on French collaboration under Vichy really took off in a big way. And in fact, it took a couple of American scholars, notably Robert Paxton of Columbia University, to actually kind of kickstart that process in, in certain ways. Now, of course, it's a very rich field in France, but it took a while to, to get going. In China, I would say that there is a small and steady stream of, stream of research on collaboration with the Japanese. It's not absent by any means, but it's much more restrained, much, less mute, much more muted than is the case with some of the other research. And there's still a slight feeling that maybe this is not the most productive direction to go in if you want to further your career. So turning specifically to the relationship with Japan, to, um, to what extent does the legacy of the war still impact on the relations between the two countries or is or between the two countries or is perceived as almost unfinished business between them in terms of their international relations? I think the Sino-Japanese war is still unfinished unfinished business in some ways between China and Japan. Not not in a formal sense where of course peace treaties have been signed, the countries have had proper diplomatic relations for, you know, many, many decades now, and there's actually a very healthy trade between the two. But the idea that there was any sort of mutual, full reconciliation has never really been reached. Um, I would say that the week that we're speaking in, as I think I mentioned before, we're seeing something of a warming. The possibility of a visit by the Japanese emperor to uh, China, uh, the opening of a new hotline between the Chinese president and the Japanese prime minister, first time that's happened. Um, so, and it's been used, I think, as well. So, you know, there are lots of signs that there's a warming up. But in the wider scale of things, I think it's still fair to say that the Chinese have an interest in portraying the Japanese as having not changed very much since the 1940s. And that's simply not true. Japan today is a pluralist, democratic, and, um, you know, very, very, uh, in some ways, quite... Um, inward-looking country, certainly not one that has any kind of great overseas aspirations in a way that was not true before the war. Japan, meanwhile, doesn't always entirely help its case because although all the things I've said are absolutely true, it's also the case there are aspects of the public sphere, certain films, certain uh, comic books, and certain temples, notably the museum in the, the Yasuku, well, not temples, but shrines, um, a museum in the Yasukuni Shrine in, in Tokyo, which portray the war in rather more heroic terms than it deserves. Even though these are mainly private enterprises, these are not the government doing this, um, it does give the idea that somewhere central, if limited within the public sphere in Japan, there's a bit too much complacency about the history of the war. And so this lack of sort of mutual understanding, I think, continues to haunt the two sides. But I think we have to put it in proportion. I think despite sometimes slightly fevered reporting, the likelihood of a war, an actual conflict between China and Japan is very limited and I think not likely to grow any further. There'll be sort of strong language, skirmishes along border lines, you know, that sort of business, not skirmishes, but, you know, sort of Chinese fishing boats trying to sort of dip across Japanese territorial waters and then heading back across with disputed islands, you know, this sort of thing. But the idea of a kind of full-scale attack on either side in this immensely populous, immensely economically important region, I think is, is, is not that high. Mm. 
And how about the mainland's relationship with Taiwan? To what extent does that remain coloured? I guess, of course, the dichotomy between the two countries was born out of, in a sense, the legacy of the war. But to what extent does it still colour their relations as well? You're right. Essentially, the, the, you know, Taiwan itself in its current status is a product of the very early Cold War, which was a direct um, follow-on from uh, geopolitical changes that came during the, during the Second World War. Um, I think that the relationship between China and Taiwan will probably remain fairly similar to what it is now for some time to come. Um, Taiwan's economy is not doing so well. It benefited partly under the previous presidency from greater access to the mainland because there was sort of warming of relations between the two sides and those have now cooled down. On the other hand, I don't think there's an immediate interest in Beijing in trying to force the Taiwan issue in a very short-term way. It is true that Beijing does consider the, 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 the Taiwan separateness to be unfinished business and would like to engage with that issue at some point. But in the immediate short term, the late 2010s, early 2020s, I still think a lot of the concentration in the mainland is going to be first and foremost on dealing with a variety of questions to do with economic rebalancing, reducing local government debt, uh, letting down the credit bubble without actually, you know, making it go pop. Um, these are things that I think are very, very difficult to make compatible with, you know, assertive or aggressive behaviour in the near neighbourhood. And therefore, I think while they continue to sort of mutter rhetorically in a fairly active way at Taiwan, I'd be surprised if it actually turned to any kind of full-scale confrontation because neither side has a short-term interest in that happening. Thank you. So um, I think finally... For students who want to learn more about what we've been, about what we've been discussing or about um, Chinese history and its, its politics in general, uh, could you tell us a little bit more about the China Centre where we currently are in Oxford and the, the work that goes on here? Absolutely. The University of China Centre here at Oxford is actually Europe's single largest centre for the study of China. We have uh, nearly 50 academics either physically in the building or affiliated very closely with it, with, with working space here. And that covers everything from the most ancient Chinese topics archaeology and uh, ancient history to very contemporary ones, international relations, political economy, uh, social science of, of, of all sorts. What we try and do to uh, bring in people who aren't necessarily uh, expert at all on China but interested in it is to have a wide variety of events which are open to all members of the university community, if I may say, just coming up in the, the near future as we speak. Uh, on the 15th of May, we have the British ambassador to China, Dame Barbara Woodward, who's going to be talking about what happens to the British-Chinese relationship after Brexit, which should be, I personally, I'm agog to find out. So that should be a very, very interesting talk. Uh, just later that week, we have a great panel with Stefania Palmer from the Financial Times, Bill Emmett from The Economist, um, an Air Vice Marshal, recently retired from the Indian Air Force, and someone from the Singapore Trade Ministry talking about, you know, where the Asia-Pacific relationship is going, again, what role Britain can play in that. And all of these are events which anyone that's interested in IR international politics and Asia, more broadly speaking, is very welcome to come along, ask questions, have a chat to the speaker. So please check out our website if you're old-fashioned like me, or our various social media if you're slightly more uh, uh, with it, um, and, um, you know, sign up for our, uh, no, not sign up for our, our events are basically, you know, come in and, uh, and, and take part, but sign up for our mailing list so you know what's going on, and please come and encourage your friends to come along too. China is a subject of endless interest, and whether it's history, literature, politics, or society of China that you're interested in, there will always be something going on here that we hope you'll find is of interest. Well, thank you very much. I think that's all we've got time for, but thank you. And, uh...
It's been a pleasure, Robert, and I hope uh, all members of the society uh, continue to uh, to thrive as exams come near. <laughs> Thank you.